Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Let's try one time. I said good morning. How are you guys doing? Amen. Amen. I like a little bit of feedback when I preach, so I'll bait you a little bit if that's okay. Uh, I just want to give you guys a, a warning today. We've got um, a couple special people that are near and dear to my life here. Uh, number one, will my mama stand up? This is my mom right here. If you can, this is Mary Kay. Um, she is going to get in your business. And so if you are not a socializer, avoid her. And so we just got her moved here this last week, and, and she is just a powerhouse on fire for the Lord. And so we are excited to, to have a new addition here to the renovation. My mama, Mary Kay, amen, amen. Of course, uh, next to her is my beautiful bride, Adrian, and we are so grateful for her, obviously. And then I've got a couple good friends, Eric and Jennifer here, and uh, the good thing about them is Eric actually drove my mom's car out here from Missouri all by himself, amen? That's a good friend. Get a friend that'll drive across the country for you, right? And so they are being convinced to move here to Phoenix. They don't know that yet, but it's in the sermon. So uh, anyway, he's a golfer, so this is a good place. If you want to golf full-time, that you can do that. But anyways, I, I am just so grateful to be here with you guys. And it is an honor and a privilege. And, and I, I can't go forward without recognizing uh, this person. And, and even to, to stand in this pulpit and stand before this body and this group of people, um, we couldn't be doing this. I couldn't be doing this without the leadership, of course, of Pastor Kurt and his family. And we are so grateful and thankful and uh, just a complete honor to even be standing in this spot. It's uh, it truly is a privilege, and I'm grateful for that. And so, you know, I, I might have misspoke a little bit, or it's the Lord. I'm not sure which one it is, but um, it has been repeated, uh, social media, Ali, I think Bailey has said it, uh, that today I'd be sharing my story. And, and, and I've tried to back out of this as many times as I could with the Lord, and um, for some people, our stories aren't necessarily pretty, Amen. Do I got any unpretty stories out there? Thank you. All right. So uh, some people are like, I ain't raising my hand. I got an unpretty story a little bit. Outside of the blood of Jesus Christ, uh, BC in my life, before Christ, it was ugly. It was a mess. I was a mess. I, I came from a, a background of, of addiction and, and, and brokenness, and I, I, fa- I followed that family tradition. My, my parents brought us here to Arizona when I was 12, 13 years old. I was turning 13, and, and we were trying to get a fresh start. And at that point, my, um, my dad and mom, they, they, they had us in church, and they tried their best. But, but addiction really just got the best of them again. Uh, when we got back out here, I quickly went into the, to the family tradition and, and chased darkness as quick as I could, uh, quickly having a, a, a drug addiction and, and really had um, some, some pretty life-altering experiences as a young person. Um, by the time I was 16 years old, I had extreme PTSD. I couldn't sleep. I, I was just, I was fried. I had, I had seen things in that lifestyle and that culture that were, were, were just, my brain could not release. And so there were things that I had and willingly done and been done to me. And so I just had a lot of trauma and had no way of coping with it other than to add more chemicals and more drugs and more pills and, and more things to escape that reality. And, and I chased that, that world as hard as you could. And um, eventually, um, 
my, my brother tried to help me kind of get out of some of that lifestyle somewhere in my late teens and 20s in that range, and I'm 38 years old in case, I know you're confused, I probably look in my 20s still, but I, I'm 38 now, but somewhere in my teens and, and early 20s, my brother was helping me try to get out of that lifestyle, but I wasn't serving Jesus. And so I still in the background had an addiction going on. I had cleaned up the exterior look a part of my life and I ended up getting married at that time. I was still living in sin and an addiction, and, but it looked good on the outside. I had two children. You guys, a lot of you have met Carter and Wyatt, and uh, they are such a blessing. But eventually, I, I ruined that marriage. I was living in addiction. I was living in lies. I was constantly living in lies. And, you know, if you, if you know much about that lifestyle, you can only lie for so long until they all catch up with you. And I would say that's the needle that really threaded my story together is my father, um, I still don't have a great relationship with him. He's, he is spending life in prison now, and, and so I don't really have a great relationship with him, but he was the chief of liars. You know, it was just consistent with his nature. You, you could never know if he was telling the truth and what was really going to happen, and, and he would do everything he could to convince you of one, of one thing and one reality, and, and your heart would want to believe that, but he, he always let us down with his lies. And, and so I inherited some of those same character traits and those same personality traits, and, and I figured if I could lie enough to enough people that they could believe it, that somehow what I was saying would eventually be true. And so even outside of a drug addict and eventually uh, after that failed marriage, I, I, it got so bad that I, I ended up being booked into jail one night and released and trespassing charges, stupid stuff. And I had nowhere to go, nowhere to stay in the middle of Springfield, Missouri. It was snowing. I had shorts on, flip-flops, and a cutoff shirt. I had no wallet, no phone, nowhere to go. And so I walked back in the jail that night, and I asked her, I'm going to freeze to death. What do I do out here? And she said, well, there's a homeless shelter about a mile away. And that was that moment, that intersection, that I really knew that I can't continue going this direction. So the first time in my life, I slept in a homeless shelter that night. You know, everybody talks about when they go through darkness and addiction or, or alcoholism or pill addiction or, or maybe you're... Your addiction's lying. That, that somehow that, that people have to hit this rock bottom eventually. They have to find this rock bottom. You know, through, mine was through uh, attempting to take my own life and then ending up in this homeless shelter. And, and all of my choices had led me to this intersection that, that I knew that God had saved me for something more. That I had done everything possible to take my own life, to end my life, to escape my reality, and he just would not allow me to do that. And so that is what led me into ministry. I eventually checked into a, a one-year addiction recovery facility. Uh, some of you might have heard of it. It's called the Dream Center. And so I did a one-year rehabilitation school of ministry training, and this Dream Center's in Missouri, and and, and while I was there, I, that's where I got my call to ministry. That's where I realized that, that all of this darkness, that all of this pain, all of this, all the lies, all the things that I had gone through, that it had a purpose. That there was a purpose, that there was a reason that I had gone through these things, that, that there was something that I could do with all these terrible experiences. And my purpose was to help other people that are in the middle of those not understanding why this has happened to me. 
you know, as your story and my story, there's so many more details. But that's the 10,000 foot view of what's happened to me. And I've been in ministry ever since. I've since been reconciled, obviously, to my children and have a wonderful relationship with them, a wonderful relationship with their mom and her husband. And, and obviously, I'm remarried and have been since, uh, since being in ministry. And so we are just, uh, we are so grateful that all of that experience has led me back to the very ground where the enemy tried his hardest to take me out. It was these very streets, it was this very neighborhood, it was this town that the enemy tried his best attacks in my life to get rid of me and destroy me and to take me out. And so I just know that we're here for a purpose and a reason and a cause. And, I, and we can't even, I told the, the, some of the team this morning that God keeps pressing on my heart to keep dreaming. To keep dreaming. That we, we look in this room now and we see the evidence of past seasons' dreams, but we don't even know what's about to happen in this place and in this town, in this neighborhood, or even in our families. Amen? Are you guys with me this morning? Good. And so uh, my story really had this, uh, like I said, this undertone, this, this theme of lies consistently. And, but the truth is, is we have this absence of credibility and truth in our entire society. We can't trust our leaders. We can't trust our politicians. We don't even know how to trust ourselves sometimes. One day I wake up on this way. The other day I wake up on this way. There is no true north. There's no consistency. And, but the truth is, is that this isn't just isolated to leaders and those people. That, that a recent study actually had this to say that an estimated of 60% of adults, this is kind of terrifying, cannot have a 10-minute conversation without lying at least once. Six out of 10 of us. Within those 10 minutes, an average of three lies are told. The next one, which is a couple more statistics I'll share with you, is 12% of adults admit to lying often or sometimes. 80% of women admit to telling harmless half-truths occasionally. 31% of people admit to lying on their resumes. I didn't, Kurt. of patients stretch the truth to the doctor. 30% of people lie about their diet and exercise. (laughs) Right? Americans tell an average of 11 lies a week. Truth. Here's a tough one. I think this is what's plagued some of our younger generation. 79, 80% of us, 8 out of 10 people say that the person that they portray online isn't true. The reality that we prop up to other people, it isn't a, a true reality of what's going on in my life. That little Brandon, when I was lost and broken, that all my goal was always to prop up this image and reality that other people believed a version of my life that wasn't true. That I thought if I could make enough people believe this, this lie, this half-truth that, that I was this or I was successful or I had a, a great life or I had all the things. I've got the house, the car, the, we, all the stuff of the world. I could prop it up and I, I made people believe that I had this stuff. And most of the time it was just half-true. Half wasn't, half was. Or just maybe I, I let people, I let them on to believe a little bit more than it really was. And, and what I realized is that I wasn't alone. You see, I wasn't alone in, 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 in allowing people to believe something about my life that isn't true. 
But we know this as believers in John 8, 32. It says that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But don't you know that we have an enemy? That we have an enemy and his weapon, his weapon in our lives are lies. That he implants just little half-truths and, and just little missteps of, of actual reality. Or, or he, he, his weapon in our life is, are these lies that, Brandon, you can never be better than the family, the, the, the generational curses that you came from. That, that you'll always be that trailer trash or you'll always be that drug addict or, or you're always going to have this on your, in your image or your record or your personality or this will be your problem. You see, we see this in John 8, that the enemy, his weapon, his weapon in our life are lies. And so when you look at John 8, it says that he has always hated the truth. He's always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. And so when the, when the enemy lies, it's consistent with his character. It's consistent with his character because for he lies and he is the father of lies. You see, we've got this tension going on in our churches, in our faith, in our own relationships, in our own lives, because we know the word of God says something like John 8, 32, that the truth will set you free. But if I ask a lot of you personally in a one-on-one conversation, free is not how you define your life. Free is not how we define our relationship in Jesus. More of the time I feel bound by the cares and concerns of this world. More of the time I allow the the things that I think that are important in this life to to have me in, in bondage more than I am living in freedom in Christ. Here's three character traits of living in truth. Here's three characteristics of, of living in truth. These are traits that'll, that will regularly define your life. The first one is in the believer's life that we will have this pattern of regular confession. Let me ask you a hard question. When's the last time you said, I'm sorry? If you can't put like a week or two on that timeline. When is the last time that you told somebody, spouses, when's the last time you told your spouse or your parents or your friends or, your, or those people in your life? When's the last time that you've admitted that you're sorry about something? You see, humility, it's like this ability to identify the areas of your personality that are not Christ-like and make others aware of that that are close to you in your life. You see, it says in James that to confess your sins one to another, it will be healed. You see, somewhere in this journey of being set free, being saved, but then living as a Christian, we get bound back up because we do not practice regular confession. We allow ourselves to get back in bondage. We allow ourselves to get back in this, in this area of feeling stuck. And, and we don't allow ourselves to practice regular confession. Because somewhere we are told that we should be perfect as believers. But that's a lie. You see, humility, one of the greatest character traits of Jesus. Able to admit where we're not like Jesus to others. That's confession. Who have you said I'm sorry to this week? Here's the second one. And this is probably 
one of the most painful for me in my life. Daily submission. You see, that word submission has been misused and abused, specifically in the church. But see, submission into the life of a believer is laying down what I could do for what I should. Laying down the comforts, cares, concerns, desires. Here's a tough one. Who's my achievers out here? Your goals. Laying down what you could do for what you should do. You see, when I am not submitting daily, when a person who is not laying something down daily most likely is not being led either. You see, when you look at this daily submission, we see this in Luke 22 as well, where Jesus himself, he says what? Not my will, but your will be done. You see, again, back to the life of a believer, we surrender our will, but somewhere along the way, we pick it back up and we say, I got this, Jesus. I got this, Holy Spirit. I don't necessarily need you to to lead and guide me through this season. This all is good things I'm doing. First one, again, just to point them out, we had regular confession, daily submission, and here's our third one, ongoing accountability. Who likes being held accountable? (laughs) It's usually not a fun thing to be held accountable. But here's the truth inside of our relationship with Jesus, that if you are not being held accountable, that you're either going forward in your relationship with Jesus Christ, or you tend to go backwards and drift. You tend to return back to the same places that, that, that he pulled you out of. You tend to, to kind of get numb in your relationship and, and dull in your spiritual disciplines or, or not overly active in your participation in bringing other people to Jesus. And so allowing yourself to be held accountable to growing is one of the three characteristics of living in truth. Let's pray together. If you'll bow your heads for me. Jesus. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this moment today just to to be in your presence, to hear your word, God. Hmm. God, I pray that you open up hearts today. that you allow me to stay out of the way long enough, Lord, for your word to be just brought with clarity. In the name of Jesus, everybody said. If I had to have a title today, it would be Promise. Promise. You know, we've been in Romans, and you've been challenged to kind of be reading through Romans with us, but this word promise, uh, to have like a pledge or to, to have assurance, a vow, a guarantee. Anybody ever heard promise kind of used this way, like, give you my word like I promise you I give you my word and I told you a little bit about my own dad and I got this story that's just been lodged in my head and so I I I felt I was going to share it today but I'm a little guy he takes us to one of his friend's houses and I don't know what they're doing I I didn't really care but all I knew what was there was a motorcycle my whole life I wanted a, a motorcycle and so he took me to his friend's house and, and he's got this little few acre uh, like plot behind him and he, he's like, I'm gonna meet with him. They're talking about some tool business or something, I don't remember. 
But he said, you can ride this motorcycle. You just go ride it out in the field. And, and I was, it was like Christmas to me. Like I've always just wanted a motorcycle my entire life. And, and so I hop on this little 50cc, the little dirt bike, and I'm riding out in this two acre little plot, like just in circles. I bet you I did 7,000 circles, just and then, and I, I never looked, I never drove in. I never checked to see if I was done. I, I just, and then finally I see my dad waving out there and I'm, I'm not pulling in there. I'm not quitting. I'm not stopping. I'm just riding my motorcycle. And finally he's got to run out there and physically stop me from riding this motorcycle. And I'm just like, dad, I, I don't want to stop. I want to ride this motorcycle. And, and he kneels down. He's like, get off this motorcycle. And he's kind of getting upset with me. And, and I said, but dad, I just want a motorcycle so bad. And what does he do? He goes, son, I promise you, I will get you a motorcycle one day. And what does he say next? I give you my word. It was the first time I've ever heard that as a, like, as a promise. I, I give you my word. Well, I, I didn't get the motorcycle, needless to say, okay? I'm still looking out there. If you ever run into one, I'll, I'll ride yours if I need to. But I didn't get that motorcycle. And so when I talk about that word promise, like, we've all probably got a little bit of like scar tissue around that word in our lives. Maybe you promised yourself something before. I'm never doing that again. God, forgive me. I'll never do that again. I promise. I'm gonna be stupid for a second. This is a good one though. How many of you in your drinking days got behind the wheel and sure enough, a, a cop pulls behind you, and then all of a sudden, what do you start doing? Promising God that you're never gonna drink again if you don't get pulled over. God, I promise, I promise I'll be done. I'll never do this again. I swear, I give you my word. I'll change my life. Promise, it's, it's something we use to get benefits for our own lives, but it's something that we forget that we're supposed to just be living in. His promises. And that's what Romans is really all about. We're in chapter 9 and 10 today. And so before I go into 9, I've got to do a little bit of justice theologically here, okay? If you know me well and you guys will get to know me well, I very rarely will stand up here or have conversations with you of trying to convince you of some theological point or, or catchphrase or, or camp that you should be thinking and living in. I'm praying that we are so close to Holy Spirit that you don't have to have questions like that, that you understand these things. <clears throat> but in Romans 9, this is like the pinnacle of arguments. And I appreciate you guys handing me off Romans 9 to unpack and not Dr. Dan. But Romans 9 is like two different camps are coming into collision here. You have your, your Calvinist camp, okay? And so if you don't know these names, just write them down. You can look them up later or forget to because I really hope you don't get caught too much. But... And, and there's a Calvinist camp, and, and, and as a Calvinist, like, you're looking at Romans chapter 9, and you're really seeing stuff like God's sovereignty. Like, God is already predestined and planned every single thing in your life, even down to the people that will choose him and won't. The people who will make it to heaven and won't make it to heaven, that as a Calvinist, you believe this, uh, that this, uh, even the sacrifice of Jesus was, was predestined for certain people to receive Jesus and certain people just would not receive Jesus. That that was planned before you even got here. And that's kind of the, the nuts and bolts of like a Calvinist school of thought. That they also believe this uh, preservation of the saints that 
once you have received Jesus Christ, this irresistible grace in your life, that once you, that God has laid his grace on you, that you cannot resist it, that no matter what, that you are making it to heaven, that you cannot walk out in relationship with Jesus Christ. This chapter nine of Romans is, is probably one of the most regularly taught Calvinist points of view. We as Nazarenes, we are over here, we are Wesleyan Armenian. And so we actually don't believe the way necessarily Calvinists do on that. We, yes, we believe in God's sovereignty, but we also believe in the free will of man. We believe that by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that he has predestined that we would have this opportunity to call out and choose Jesus as my Lord and Savior. That you have a choice to make in this life. I look back at my life and I know that I made those choices. And so even today when you hear this message, we believe as, as, as Armenians, as Wesleyan Armenian, that you have a, a choice that you get to make that, that God so loves us so much that he places prevenient grace in our life, that, that he begins softening our hearts and even today making you aware of things in your life that maybe can't stand. We believe that's God's grace, but we also believe that you have a choice and Kind of that last piece that I was talking about, we also believe that you can receive Jesus Christ, but then you can choose to walk out of that loving relationship with Jesus if you choose to. That there, you can begin making choices in your life and, and at some point we're probably saying the same thing, that, that somebody can walk so far out of relationship that they're not making it to heaven. So we're both afraid of Calvinist and Armenian that somehow the, there's a group of people that are not making it to heaven and they need to know the truth. Those are the two different theological intersections that happen through this text. And, and again, I don't wanna get lost in those weeds, but you have to bring them up. That way you feel like you are made aware of what's going on inside of this text. All right, let's go on. Romans chapter nine, verses one through three. Let's do this together. <laughs> Excuse me, this is Paul right here. See, I love this language. He's, he was compelled. He was almost obsessed. Might even use the word like possessed. Like he was unable to do anything but preach this gospel message. And you can see that like in his words here. So in Romans chapter nine, this is verses one through three. This is verse one first. And so Paul says this, he says, with Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness, utter truthfulness. You see this next verse, Christ is my witness. When we talk about living in truth, somehow there's this like holy communion between the way he, he offers as Christ as being his witness to his truthfulness in his life. But then somehow he's so close to the Holy Spirit that his conscience and the Holy Spirit confirmed this truth that he's telling us. It's an example to us believers. And so in verse two, he goes on to say my, that my heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people. My Jewish brothers and sisters, I would be forever cursed, cut off from Christ. I would be willing to be forever cursed and cut off from Christ if that would save him if that would save this group of people. See, I think about that and it really convicts me. Am I so willing to be forever cursed and cut off 
from Christ? Am I that extreme about being other people to Jesus? You see, he continues to, to talk about this, the cost that he's willing to pay for his, his Jewish believers, the friends in, in chapter nine. It continues to go on and it says that, that God calls people according to his own purpose. That somehow in chapter nine, he, he continues to talk about this relationship with Jacob and Esau, that, that, that somehow God loved Jacob, but he rejected Esau. That, that there's just two groups of people that, that somehow that God is, has this group of people that he has chosen and, and let's receive him. But Esau, that, that somehow he rejected him and he says that Jacob's heart was postured toward God. But what was this promise that we know in chapter nine? Like what was this promise that we're, we're learning of in chapter nine? And so in Romans nine sixteen, this is what it says. You see, he had already given the, the Israelites, he gave them all these covenants and the privilege of worshiping, worshiping him. He gave Jesus as an Israelite, but still it wasn't enough. They were still debating this theology or the, the problems with the Jews and the Gentiles being offered mercy. And so this is what he said. So it is God who decides to show mercy. You see, the Jewish people, and this is where we get stuck sometimes, the Jewish people a lot of times thought that they could work for salvation. That it was by good behavior and works that they earned their righteousness. You see, but it's God who decides to show mercy and we can neither choose it or work for it. Here's the problem. See, when you look at this chapter nine and, and you're just gonna have to get used to me sweating, I sweat all the time. I don't know if you know that, but you will learn this. I, I usually carry a hanky, so don't, the sweat's not a medical issue. I'm just a sweater. <laughs> but here's our problem. See, in Romans 9.20, it says this, that people are complaining. They're getting in the way of God's promises in their life. And it says, who are you? a mere human being to argue with God. Should the thing that was created say to the one who created it, why have you made me this way? You ever been there? I talked to a few of you this morning. You ever been in this place where you, you're just screaming at God, why? Why have you made me this way? Why is this going on in my life? God, why don't you change this? See, until you move from why God have you caused this to how God can you use this, we're gonna be stuck living outside the promises of God. I'm gonna invite the worship team up. If everybody else would go ahead and stand on their feet, I'm gonna try to land this plane with us. Romans 10, one through three. Paul goes on to say, dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but is mis 
directed zeal. Remember the character traits of living in truth? I want you to look at this real quick. For they don't understand this. You can go back to the verse for me. For they don't understand God's way of thinking, making people right with themselves. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way. How do you answer this question this morning? Have you began clinging back to your own way of doing life? Are you not allowing yourself to be held accountable, led to living a righteous and holy life? You see, they had this misdirected zeal that to be misdirected means that nobody's leading you. You see, they cling to their own way of getting right with God. They, they continue to do things. They continue to stay in control of their own life. We tend to do this a lot as believers. If you'll bow your head, I want to pray for you. We're going to have a moment of response here. Romans 10.9 says this, Lord, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you'll be saved. And so this morning, Lord, you've let me unpack your word. You've allowed people to, to hear this message today, Lord. And so rather that they've not confessed in a long time or Lord, that maybe they, uh, they don't have any submission in their life, that they've not asked you in a long time what it was, God, that you want them to be doing. Or maybe they've just been stagnant for a long time in their relationship with you, Lord. As we have a few moments of response time, these altars are open. And Lord, that we could have a few moments with you this morning. So Father, I ask you just to have your way this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen.